I invite you once again to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We looked at, we began in, uh, looking at this passage uh, last week, and we're going to look at it again this morning, but from a different angle. Jonah chapter 3, we'll begin our reading in verse 1. We'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 10. Hear the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we give thanks to you for the grace that we celebrate, the grace that uh, is at work even now uh, upon us and within us, the grace that comes only from you and is found only in Christ. We pray now that by your grace and by the power of your Spirit, you would grant to us wisdom, the wisdom that comes from your Word and and an understanding and a predisposition to be obedient to your Word, and then in doing it. So Lord, we pray that these words that we considered yet again today uh, would speak to us. For some would encourage, others perhaps break, but in all it would form and shape us to being who you would call us to be, both as individuals and as your people, that our lives as well as our words would honor and glorify you, not only this day, but each day that you give us breath. Lord, to you be all praise and glory. May you be honored as we listen for your spirit to speak. May you be glorified as we humble ourselves before you, and walk in the joy that we have with you. We pray this in all things through the incomparable name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. In 1955, an Irish-American author named Leonard Wibberley published a book that's called The Mouse That Roared. Now, originally, The Mouse That Roared came out as a series of articles or series uh, uh, that were uh, in the uh, Saturday Evening Post, but the popularity led the publishers to say, we want to go ahead and put this in a book form, and the book came out, uh, and it was a nationwide bestseller. The, the book was written, and the series of articles was written as uh, it was a satire, primarily intended to be a commentary on both world and 
uh, than uh, U.S. politics, particularly having in focus the, the, uh, the, the developing Cold War and the uh, nuclear armament race uh, that was causing concern throughout the world and certainly was on the minds and consciousnesses of many who are here in America. And so it's created this, this satire. It's about a fictional, small European country that declares war on the United States. This country that was known as the Duchy of Grand Fenwick, that was supposedly somewhere in the Alps. It was tiny, three miles by five miles was the entirety of the kingdom. And their economy had collapsed. They continued to have an agrarian economy as they had chosen that they didn't want anything to do with the developing of the industrial age. And therefore their economy was, uh, was, uh, had collapsed and they were trying to figure out how are we going to sustain uh, ourselves and keep our country going. And so they came up with this idea. The prime minister declared, here's what we need to do. We're going to declare war on the United States, which we can't possibly win. And then once we are vanquished, we'll receive all of the gifts that the United States always gives to all of the countries that they had vanquished. And that was the way that they were going to plan, that was that they were going to restore their country. And so as the plan was unfolding, they eventually sent an army of 20 men dressed in medieval uh, uh, garb, because that's all that they had. And they took a boat, came across the Atlantic, and landed in a harbor in New York City while there was an air raid. A drill going on. The streets were empty, the lights were out, because the city was practicing for the possibility of, of a war that was going to come. And so they just kind of got off the boat, walked into town, and there was nobody. Nobody to greet them, nobody to meet them, nobody to stop them. They were a little bit surprised, so they wandered around for a little bit, and they finally found a government building that they were going to go to so they could surrender themselves. But there was nobody there, so they wandered into this government building, and there they run into a scientist who had just developed what they called the, the Q-bomb, which apparently was more powerful than all the atomic uh, energy that the United States and Russia had combined at that time. And in conversation with the scientists, they ended up taking him captive along with his bomb and returning to their country, now in possession of the biggest and most powerful weapon that had ever been developed. They had declared victory. They planted their flag, and some other things, and they went back to their country. A couple of months later, the United States Secretary of State was quite uh, stunned and ashamed that the United States had been at war for two months and he didn't even know it. The, Grand, the Duchy of Grand Fenwick had apparently conquered the United States, the mouse had roared. Now, a few years later, that uh, became, uh, the, the, the book became a movie starring Peter Sellers of the uh, Pink Panther fame. It kind of goes along that way. It is actually on a rainy day, a worthwhile uh, watch if you can find it somewhere. Uh, but the whole, the whole premise, the whole story, even the whole, the whole plot is just in, incredibly farcical. But as ridiculous as that story is, that somebody, this tiny little nation, would come and conquer uh, the United States, it was probably just as unimaginable to anyone in antiquity that they might go in and invade uh, the great city of Nineveh. It just was unthinkable. It was the capital of the most militaristic people that were ruthless and armed 
And it was a fortified city with a, a wall that surrounded it. No one in their right mind would even dare think about going in and trying to capture that city. But God not only besieged it, he took it. And he took it because he took one man, one broken man, one weak man, as we have seen, and he turned him into an army of one. Now, as we looked at this passage last week, we, we focused primarily on the fact that God has a purpose for his people, his individuals and as the church, and that is to be about the work of his kingdom, the advancement of his kingdom and his work, which even as Jesus had said that the, the church that Jesus is building is going to be so powerful. It is going to be so effective that even the gates of hell would not be able to stand against it. In other words, they wouldn't be able to stand as the, the church continues to make headroads in reclaiming the different corners of the earth that belong to the Lord. All of, all of the earth belongs to the Lord. And as the church goes out and loves as Christ has loved us, proclaims the hope with which we have received, comforts with the comfort that we have received, God breaks down the walls of resistance. People come and they join in the kingdom of God. And God is advancing his kingdom through love and through sacrifice and the declaration of the gospel to all peoples. And we focused on the fact that when God called you to be part of his kingdom, he enlisted you to be part of his work, his mission, that as God calls us in, as God sucks us in, he never does that without also sending us out. And he intends for his people, for his church to be agents of transformation, a, a vivid representation of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. And we look at what God is doing and has declared that he will do. This morning, as we look at this passage, I want to look at it again from a, from a slightly different angle. I want us to consider how God can use, use you and how he can use me, how he can use each and every one of us and how he makes us agents of transformation. And John is a wonderful, wonderful illustration to us of exactly what God is doing and what God intends to do. I think first and foremost, we need to recognize this principle. It's not anything that's new around here. It's not new to most of you which, uh, that have come to this church. But we need to continually remind ourselves of this truth that God's persistent grace is what qualifies us for usefulness. See, I'm amazed as we look at this passage, God comes back to Jonah, even as it, it sort of indicates, uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God comes back to Jonah and says, are you ready now? So he doesn't ask him that. He comes back to Jonah and he sends him back on the very mission that he had called him to go on in the first place. And God just says, essentially, I'm ready to send you back which is both encouraging, but it's also sort of baffling if you think about it. Because it, part of me, as I read this, I'm familiar with the story, but if I was to move myself back and think about it in any other context, I would say, that doesn't really make sense. So this is an incredibly heroic quest that God has commissioned this man to go do. He's going to go to the meanest, nastiest nation in the world. He's going to go declare to them their need to repent and to turn from their ways because God was going to judge this country and bring them down to their knees. I mean, that is an absolutely incredible mission that God had sent this guy on. And heroic quests are supposed to go to those who are the best qualified, aren't they? 
I mean, the ones who are supposed to get the best assignments are the ones who have the GP, best GPAs. The ones who have the best assignments are the ones who have shown themselves to be able to deal with and overcome the obstacles and come out prevailing. And the ones that have proven themselves to be both faithful. That's the way that we look at things. And yet here's God is calling a man who had in the past had served him, but in a more recent time had not only failed to serve him, but ran from him and was even willing to die rather than to accomplish what God had called him to do. I mean, this is a horrific failure and betrayal. And as I think about this, it's, it would, it's almost as if George Washington, as he's planning out the battle in, in Yorktown, he says, you know, who's the best leader I've had? You know, Benedict Arnold. We're going to get Benedict Arnold to run the, run the show when we go up to Yorktown to finish this whole thing out, nine months after Benedict Arnold had, had, uh, had abandoned uh, uh, the United States and, and become a traitor to his country. I mean, that would be absolutely unthinkable. And yet that's what God is doing here. And that's what God does all throughout the scriptures. And that's what God does even today. God just has a habit of taking those people who would seem to be lesser qualified, maybe even sometimes the least likely people. And he says, you're the one I'm going to use. I mean, think about it, even removing from Jonah and think about who among the apostles, who among the, the, the disciples, with the exception of Judah, Judas, had the worst track record. Now, every one of them could probably lay claim to it to some extent, but most people would say it's Peter. I mean, Peter regularly was falling all over himself, great passion, great uh, uh, commitment, uh, but, you know, falling all over himself and saying foolish and, and stumbling things. At the very least, he's the one who has the, the most foolish things recorded. Others might have, you know, had editing and said, you know, I don't want that in there. But uh, Peter was willing to allow his bumbling his foolishness, even his failure to be recorded for, for all, all time. And yet who was it that God had raised up to be the one to speak at Pentecost? It was Peter. Who was it that was essentially the first among equals among all of the apostles uh, after Jesus' ascension? And we see most of the record would indicate that Peter was highly influential, highly successful. It's almost like a principle for God to say, I'm going to take those who are broken, those who are failure. I'm going to not only forgive them, but I'm going to restore them and I'm going to use them once they have been renewed. And we can't call it a Peter principle because we already have one of those, which, you know, that's the one that says, you know, we rise to the, to the, to the, to the highest level of our incompetence or the lowest level of our incompetence. You continue to get promoted until you're no good at whatever job it is that they give you. That's the Peter principle. Since we can't call it the, the Peter principle, I decided we would call it the, the Jonah principle because that's what we see being illustrated here that is true over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. Now, what's the Jonah principle? I would put it this way. The Jonah principle is that God makes life out of death, that failure makes you useful. And in your weakness, it is when God shows his strength. It's the Jonah principle that we see at work here in this person that is illustrated or the principle of what God does throughout all of Scripture. And we're not only just simply extrapolating it here and kind of coming up with something. We see the, the Jonah principle illustrated in Jesus' own life and teaching. If you think about it, in, in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees came to Jesus requesting him to give a miracle to validate his claims for Messiahship, Jesus was essentially speaking of the, the Jonah principle because Jesus said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Now, what did he mean by that? 
one party was indicating that he would be, you know, dead or out of circulation for three days, and then he would miraculously uh, reappear through his resurrection. But it also knows that you will know me not by my power, but by my weakness. See, we recognize the power of the resurrection, but the weakness of God who came in the flesh, who was also willing to die, suffer and die, it was by his weakness and then combined with his power that we recognize Jesus being who he claimed he would be, who he is, that he is the one who had been long promised, the seed of the woman, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would redeem the people, restoring them, reconciling them to God the Father. And Jesus is speaking to that, and he's saying that it's out of, out of, out of the weakness that he was going to show and the frailty of his humanity that we're going to recognize the glory and the power of God. And he embodied that himself. I think Jesus even speaks of it as he's teaching in John chapter 12, 24, Jesus illustrates the, the Jonah principle because he, he gives us this illustration parable. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And see, what Jesus is teaching there is that unless the seed dies and moves from the place where it's most comfortable, dies from its present state, moves into the, it dies as in going into the ground. It may be comfortable, but it's not useful for anything. But once the seed dies and goes into the ground, once the seed dies to itself, then it becomes useful and a blessing to others, to everyone. It is only when it dies and goes into the ground does it actually fulfill the very purpose for which it was created. That's the Jonah principle. It's a call for you and it's a call for me to recognize that these failures in our life that feel like death, they are actually an opportunity for God to demonstrate his power in us and God to demonstrate his power through us. But it's only when we die to ourselves, die to our agendas, it is only when we, and usually that happens only when we fail, it is only when that happens are we now prepared to be useful. And so we need to be reminded here of something that we know, and it's, it's simple, but it's so simple that it is easy to overlook. It is God's persistent grace that qualifies us for usefulness. It is not the absence of need of God's grace. It is God's grace at work. When we are reminded of God's grace, when we are rooted in God's grace, when we see God's grace at work within us, that is the evidence that God is at work and he will use us. And so I want to say to you today, particularly any of you who are struggling with this, those of you who think of the failures that you've had either in the past or maybe that you're struggling with or that you fear are coming right now, something that will disqualify you for usefulness, that you're just happy to be able to be included in the family, but you just don't think that there's anything you're going to be able to do, the Jonah principle tells us that is exactly the opposite. If any of you thinks that you're too big of a failure to be used by God, remember Jonah. You are not disqualified in your brokenness. You are becoming qualified.
But along with that, we also need to see in the second principle, it, the foundation and the undeniable aspect to be used by God, it requires God's grace to be at work upon us and within us. We also need to recognize that it is suffering and failure that prepares us for usefulness. We see that vividly here with Jonah. And some of you have experienced in your life. Some of you have never embraced your suffering and your failures as a way of being made useful. Now, I understand both from experience and from others that it really should be quite a scary thing to go to God and say, I'm ready for service. Because what happens when somebody says to God, I'm ready for service, is God usually sends you to boot camp. And boot camp is hard. A friend of mine was a chaplain a number of years ago at Paris Island. And he had just started as his chaplaincy, and that was where they sent him. And he came back and was reporting to our presbytery at the time. And as he was giving his first report, and he just said, you know, I just stand amazed. There seems to be something about boot camp that makes these guys want, really wanting to talk about God. Now, I wasn't in the military, but I could only imagine what that would be. And as I hear the stories of boot camp, those of you who are probably can understand even better than I can, boot camp is hard. It strips you of who you are in order that you become somebody who is able to be used. You're broken. You come to periods of failures. You, you experience the Peter principle in order to experience the Jonah principle. When you're ready, when you think that you're ready, you're broken. There's a principle that God, that I, I think it was A.W. Tozer that said that those that God is going to use most, he is going to wound uh, deeply. And so this is not intended to say, you know, don't go to God and say, I'm ready, but to recognize that's a principle because some of you have been feeling disqualified because the suffering that you've experienced or the failure that you have experienced and you feel like, I, I'm just not able to be used. I'm, I'm too weak. I'm too frail. I think that that's what we need to recognize is that God is at work already preparing you because it's suffering that makes you a servant. And this is true in every level. We understand this in, outside of the spiritual realm. We understand this in, 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 in from natural illustration. Just think about this. Who is it that has done the most against drunk driving? Now you think about mad mothers against strict driving. It's the families of those who have lost uh, someone, a teenager or somebody else, the two drunk drivers. They're, they're, they're broken hearts. They're, they're pained. They're, their suffering has driven them to do something. And in their pain and in their suffering, they have acted and they become useful for other people. Who is it that does the most for those with disabilities. It's usually either those with disabilities or the family members of those with disabilities who have recognized this, the, the challenges and the, and, and the discarding that has been characteristic of our culture. And so they jump in and they try to plow down the, the, the obstacles uh, that keep those with disabilities from participating at any level. And over and over and over again, you can imagine and you can think about any number of situations where the ones who have been the most effective are the ones who have, in some way or another, been wounded. And in their woundedness, in their brokenness, in their suffering, in their response, they have begun 
to engage. It was the suffering, it was the woundedness that prepared them to become a servant. And it is in the suffering that God prepares us. God kind of shakes us and prunes us. And it's important that we remember that. And it's necessary that we experience this because deep in our hearts, most if not all of us believe this, that the world is basically a safe place or it should be. That people really don't suffer that much. And that those who do suffer probably deserve it. That's our default mode. That's our instinct that needs to be shaped by the Word of God to recognize that none of those things are actually true. Because of sin that has entered into the world, the world is not a safe place, and it will not be a safe place until there is no sin in this world. And the very nature of the world is to push against the message of the kingdom of God, sometimes by direct defiance, other times by copying and making promises that it will deliver the very things that the kingdom promises, but it'll do so without the king. The world is not a safe place. And people really do suffer. All of us suffer. We don't suffer the same. We don't suffer the same measure of things, and we don't suffer the same depth of things, but everybody suffers, and many, many people are suffering at a deep, deep level. And because even the people in the church fundamentally seem to believe at times, contrary to the scriptures, that those who suffer, you know, probably deserve it, people who are suffering rarely will talk about their suffering. They'd rather hide until things fall apart because they fear the rejection they refer, refer the, they fear the, uh, the derision of others who somehow think that the message of the gospel makes us better, superior, and perhaps even immune to suffering. You see, we believe that the world is safe, and we believe that eh, people aren't suffering that big of a problem. Some people are, but most people don't suffer that much. And we believe that, you know, those who do suffer big, believe that we believe that until we're the ones who are suffering. Now, at times it is because there's a consequence to our own actions and consequence to the decisions that we make, whether those decisions themselves were right or wrong. But it's, it's also true that people suffer not because of anything that they have done. We suffer because of sin in the world. We suffer because God has called us. He's created us to be relational people, and he's called us to be in relationships. And therefore, the, the sin of others uh, becomes hard and difficult and painful for us. We need to recognize that it takes failure. It takes suffering to prune us and to shape us into being servants. Because it takes suffering to humble us. It takes suffering so that we don't look down our noses or somehow think that at those who are suffering and we don't look at others and somehow think, man, I don't have that problem. So, you know, condescension that sometimes happens in the guise of counsel and encouragement. You see, it's suffering and it's failure that makes you approachable being approachable, being understanding, being compassionate. Those are essential equipment if you're going to be effective for the sake of the kingdom in the lives of other people. We need to realize that we are not of any good to anyone. 
until we have suffered and God uses that suffers, brings humility, compassion. It's then that the Lord says, now I'm ready to send you. Now I'm ready to send you back. So how do we apply this? I think first thing I, I need to clarify is this, is that we, we can't just assume that our suffering is going to automatically transform us to become an army of one. It, it's not the suffering itself, but how we respond to the suffering that shapes us. See, sufferings will either make you more self-absorbed or it will make you less self-absorbed, but it will leave you with scars and it will, uh, and, and it will not leave you the same. But the suffering comes and says, it makes, makes us say, look at me and, and we become self-pitying is not shaping us to enable us to become an army of one. On the other hand, suffering, just like the absence of suffering, can work in some people and it can develop an arrogance. Whether it's sort of in a passive, boastful way or whether it's really in a true attitude, it's possible to say, look at all I have endured and here I stand. And the message that comes from those is usually pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. If I could overcome, so you can overcome. Those are two ways in which we become self-absorbed and that suffering leads us to be self-absorbed, either self-wallowing in pity or, you know, we become our, the, the poster child for uh, our, our own campaign to show our own, own greatness. But when we allow our sufferings and our failures to, to break us, which then drive us to God, we see God works not only to bring healing, but he renews and he restores and he transforms us. And so we need to recognize the sufferings that we've had, the sufferings that we may face, the sufferings that may be going on in your life right now. They are not an indication that God is done with you, but God may be shaping you. But it's not simply experiencing them, but how you respond to it that will shape you to be useful for God and for the sake of others. Now, some might just say, well, you don't understand. My suffering is ruining me. And I do understand. And I will say to you what I have to say to myself. It is ruining you only if you allow it to ruin you. We can't waste our sufferings on mere sorrow. But we can be embracing of the reality. We can be drawn out of our suffering as we take our sufferings uh, to the Lord who will then transform us and enable us, equip us, and put us in a place where we can be used for the sake of his kingdom. It's God's grace and the sufferings we experience that transform us to be the agents of transformation in the lives of the people who are around us.
And as we are agents in the lives of people, then we can be agents together or perhaps in situations like God has designed for, for Jonah, maybe even in a broader cities, communities, states, nations. God is redeeming a people. He's calling a people. He's bringing broken, wounded people, restoring them, showing that through our weakness, God's glory is shown, and God uses that and uses us in order to bring about transformation. This is the Jonah principle. So let me wrap up with this because I, I have a question. What if, what, if anything, do you believe in? Is there anything for which you have a tremendous passion? Is there anything that's, that's gripping you? Is there any cause for which you live and maybe even be willing to die? A cause we, we think of like with Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. He, you know, pretty vivid. I want to move it from American history into church history. John Knox, give me Scotland or I die. I got to confess to you that my prayer is more like this most of the time. Give me Williamsburg or I'm going to be in a bad mood. Uh, it's hardly the same. Is there anything about which you are passionate or anything that's, that really excites you? Because that may be an indication of where God is going to send you even as he is shaping you. You see, literature is filled with heroic quests defying the odds from whether it's from Joan of Arc or to Superman. That's, you know, all of that. And it grabs the imagination, not only of children, but of adults. Every child has this dream that somehow they're going to just make a difference in the world and, and maybe even become the, the leader of the world. But there's this something within each one of us that, that dreams of, of a world-saving venture, dreams of, of making a, a difference somehow or another. And, and it's not just limited to children. It eventually, it makes its way into adult lives, whether it's shaped in a healthy way or not. But if you think through, uh, through about, about history, uh, the 1960s radicalism, the 1990s Christian coalition, even the Black Lives Matter that is, is today, these are all passions of people that want to make a difference in the world for whatever it is that triggered the passion in that. This is the desire to make a difference. This is a difference to change the world. This is a difference to, desire to be used in a, in a particular field. And so the question is, what is it that is a passion in your heart and in, in your life? Because it's important that we identify that. A couple generations ago, British writer Dorothy Sayers wrote, the sin of our age is in believing in nothing. And I don't think that's necessarily the sin of our age, although certainly it's a sin of some that are in our age. And it is perhaps the sin of many in the church that identify this whole idea of being called by God is now escaping the discomforts of the world, thinking that God is going to just, you know, put us on the sideline and yeah, we'll contribute as other people go out. Uh, and so there's really nothing that they're passionate about. They, they don't really have any aspirations of figuring out where they're going to make a difference in the world as long as they're comfortable and their kids are safe from, you know, the big bad world and the people who are not like us. That's not the way that God has designed us. And unfortunately, I think that there, there's, there's something that's true for what Dorothy Sayer says, that, you know, that the sin of the age is in believing nothing. But I do think that deep down, Every one of us has a conscience and every one of us has a cause to which you know, we want to give money or we give money or we volunteer or we would like to volunteer our, our time. 
And anyone who doesn't have anything is just very likely to get shrivel up because the only focus we have is ourselves and we're not created for that. That's what Jonah experiences when he was focusing on himself, when he was focusing on his superiority to these evil people. He was wasting away spiritually until God restored him. I ask you the question, what is it you're passionate about? Because that's an indication. The way that God works is that he takes his broken people, he restores them, he's at work within them, and he continually, we, we're always dependent upon him. So we, we never just says, okay, now you're full. You just go and come back if you need help. We are constantly, with God's power at work in us, transforming us, shaping us, using our, uh, our failures, using our suffering to, to shape us, to bring humility and then hope, an experience of God's grace and the power of his grace that's within us, then he sets us into particular contexts. The church as a whole that he plants in every community and in every nation and people that ministers to others, but individuals within every church have different passions. So some of you may demonstrate that. You can be a little league coach. Some of you may be involved in Grove Outreach and ministering to some who struggle. There's no limit, but what is it that's on your heart? God is giving you a vision for, and through your suffering, through your pain, and by his grace, he's preparing you to make a difference in the lives of those people. And together, his church then shapes a community. It becomes the salt. It becomes the light that God has intended it to be. And it's through our compassion that is born by our failures and suffering. And with a message of the hope that we have experienced, it kind of tears down the gates where the enemy still is presently dwelling and leads the captives out. You were created for this kind of purpose. And there are people all around you who need you and who are dying without you. The Jonah principle illustrated all throughout Scripture. Your dying, your suffering, by God's grace, is the preparation for your usefulness to participate in God changing the world. May God grant us clarity of our own brokenness. May He grant us clarity of the uniqueness of the callings He's placing in each of our lives. Make it by God's grace, He propel us to be His agents of transformation in this community and throughout the world. Father, we do pray, though fearfully, that You would use us. Lord, we know that suffering is part of life. We spend a lot of our lives trying to, to avoid that suffering. We pray that You would give us the wisdom to know the difference between foolishness and faithfulness. And to embrace the scars of the sufferings that come from faithfulness. To allow the sufferings that come from foolishness to break us, to humble us, and to cling to your grace. That not only forgives, but empowers. Lord, may we be people, collectively and individually, who respond to your call as Isaiah did. Here I am, Lord. Send me. 
and your name be praised, we pray. Not only in the church, but throughout the world. We pray in Christ, the King. Amen.